The Israeli military says it's pulled its troops out of a West Bank refugee camp. The two-day operation left at least 12 Palestinians dead. It's Wednesday, July 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a look at how some recent Supreme Court decisions match up with public opinion and what that could mean for the 2024 presidential election. Also this hour, outreach workers in Massachusetts are trying to reach people whose health insurance coverage is at risk because of changes in Medicaid rules. If they don't take action, there's a possibility that they may lose coverage, and that's what nobody wants. Plus the pushback against unionization efforts at retailer REI and a new look at the history of the 1980s pop duo Wham! Clouds will give way to sun today. It'll be in the 80s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. This week's mass shootings in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Fort Worth, Texas, were among several mass shootings that marred July 4th celebrations across the nation. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee reports gun violence has been claiming lives in record numbers in the U.S., leaving many communities dealing with trauma and grief. Nearly 350 mass shootings have already happened this year. More than 21,000 people have died from all kinds of gun violence. Many more are left struggling with the mental health fallout of such violence. While most people recover in time, psychologist Robin Gerwich at Duke University says people closest to the incident suffer the most. Those that were close to where the event happened or if they had fear for themselves or loved ones or knew anyone that was killed or injured, they have more risk for mental health challenges. But she adds long-term mental health and social support can help communities heal in the long run. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. President Biden will host the Prime Minister of Sweden at the White House today. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the visit comes ahead of the upcoming NATO summit this month an alliance that Sweden has been trying to join as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The White House says the meeting between Biden and Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson will reaffirm America's view that Sweden should join NATO as soon as possible. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Finland and Sweden have both moved to join NATO, but only Finland's application has been ratified so far. The holdup on confirming Sweden's membership is due to opposition from Turkey. The White House says during their meeting, Biden and Christensen will also discuss relations with China, climate change, and new technologies. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Ukraine is once again warning of the threat posed to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant by occupying Russian forces. Speaking through a BBC interpreter, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says the Kremlin is planning dangerous provocations at the facility. We have information from our intelligence that on the roof of several power units of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the Russian military installed objects similar to explosives. The world sees that the only source of danger for the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is Russia itself and no one else. Russian troops seized the station last year. Since then, the two sides have accused the other of shelling around the facility and risking a major nuclear mishap. You're listening to NPR News. 
in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Sumner Tunnel is now closed, and it will stay closed through the end of August. That means you'll need to find a new way to get from East Boston to downtown. To help ease congestion, the T has made the blue line free for riders. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang says there will also be increased ferry service, among other alternatives. I'm pleased to say that five Chelsea neighborhood bus routes Route 111, 112, 114, 116, and 117 will also be free during the summer shutdown. And for the commuter rail, a one-way trip from any station along the entire Newbury Port Rockport line is $2.40, the price of a subway ride. There's a guide to help you get around the closure at WBUR.org. The mayor of Lawrence says the city's police chief has abruptly retired. The departure of Chief Roy Vasque comes amid an investigation into the department. Vasque was placed on leave in January due to the inquiry, although the specific nature of that inquiry has not been made public. It's unclear if his retirement is connected to the investigation. A group of Massachusetts firefighters will head to Canada today to help contain wildfires there. The group of 16 will spend the next two weeks in Quebec. This is the second group of firefighters sent from Massachusetts to Canada this summer. Some 70 wildfires have been burning in northern Quebec since June. Smoke from the fires is creating unhealthy air conditions in the U.S., including here in Massachusetts. A five-year restoration project is starting on the Franconia Ridge Loop Trail in New Hampshire. Kate Dario reports on the work being done to one of the most popular hiking trails in New England. Recent storms and heavy use have taken a toll on the Ridge Trail, which starts and ends in Franconia Notch in the White Mountains. Heather Klish is the Vice President of Conservation and Recreation Advocacy for the Appalachian Mountain Club. She said the trails need to be updated to stay accessible for future generations. The project is all about repairing, restoring, and in some places even realigning the trails that comprise the Franconia Trail Loop. The trail is among the busiest in the region. It sees 1,000 daily hikers during peak season. Crews will be working on portions of the trail Monday through Thursdays this summer. Hikers are advised to practice caution when in active construction areas. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kate Dario. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Tonight at Fenway, the Red Sox will host the Texas Rangers. The Sox lost to the Rangers yesterday, 6-2. Early morning fog and clouds will eventually give way to sunny skies. It'll be in the mid-80s today, clear overnight with lows in the 60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid to upper 80s. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state of the art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org/rentals.
It's Morning morning Edition edition from from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Michelle Martin. A federal judge has blocked some government agencies and Biden administration officials from communicating with tech companies. Government officials say they work with social media companies to stop criminal activity like child abuse and, and terrorism. In recent years, the agencies also asked for better policing of misinformation on COVID vaccines and election interference. Republican attorneys general in Louisiana and Missouri sued over that, arguing the government was suppressing conservative viewpoints. Kat Zakreski is a tech policy reporter with The Washington Post, and she's with us now to tell us more about it. Kat, good morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. This just seems like an extraordinary development. I just can't think of another instance where government officials were told they could not talk to key players in an industry. So just tell us what's the basis for it. For years, Republicans have argued that social media companies' policies to address disinformation related to elections and public health have resulted in unfair censorship of their views. The Republican AGs brought those arguments to court, subpoenaing thousands of emails between Biden officials and tech companies that they say showed illegal collusion between the administration and the tech industry. But the Biden administration disputes these claims, and they've argued that those communications actually reflect the government using its bully pulpit to promote accurate information in the face of foreign interference in elections and a deadly pandemic. What do we know about what this ruling means for how the government operates now? So this order puts limits on executive agencies across the government. This affects the Department of Justice, the State Department, the Department of Health and Human Services, the CDC. It also affects more than a dozen individual officials with a lot of power over various institutions related to elections and public health, including the Department of Homeland Security Secretary, Jen Easterly, who leads the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And in addition to limiting the government's communications with tech companies, the judge also prohibited um, agencies and officials from, quote, collaborating with key academic groups that focus on social media. These are groups like the Election Integrity Partnership, academics who work out of Stanford and University of Washington on issues like voter suppression and um, public health disinformation. And I just want to point out that the judge did make some exceptions for communications in this order, including to allow government officials to warn the tech companies of potential national security threats, criminal activity, or voter suppression. Why are the plaintiffs going after government officials and government agencies and these academic researchers? Why not uh, sue the social media companies directly? Well, they've tried that before and it didn't work. The tech companies effectively argued that they have a First Amendment right to decide what appears on their sites. So we've really seen a new twist in Republicans' complaints, now focusing instead on the federal government's role in that process. There would seem to be profound implications for the First Amendment and free speech. We'll have to talk more about that in the future. That's Kat Zakreski. She's a tech policy reporter with The Washington Post. Kat, thank you so much. Thank you. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen heads to China this week. The visit comes at a time of tense relations between the world's two largest economies. And that's why Yellen is going, to try to improve ties, even as the U.S. is actively seeking to reduce its economic dependence on China. It's a tightrope act that China specialist Arthur Krober has been following closely. He joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Arthur. Good morning. Glad to be here. 
It's been four years since a U.S. Treasury Secretary visited Beijing, and in that time, relations between the U.S. and China have worsened considerably. For years, these two economies really needed each other. To what extent is that still the case? I think that's still enormously the case.、Um, you know, all-time、uh, trade is at an all-time high, over seven hundred billion dollars. You have a lot of U.S. companies、uh, that still rely on China as one of their major. Uh, markets, uh, both for volume and for growth, so there's definitely been some chipping away in, in certain areas, notably semiconductors. But the level of interdependence is still extremely high. And you know, the U.S. has been trying to disentangle itself from China more recently. You know, reshoring supply chains, placing controls on semiconductor technology, as you mentioned. You know, keeping Trump-era tariffs on Chinese goods in place. I'm curious, how do you think this has shaped how China interacts with the rest of the world? Well, I think the Chinese have come to the conclusion that it is the purpose of U.S. policy not just to reduce its reliance on China, but to slow down China's growth and its technological development. So it's made China a lot more suspicious than it already was of U.S. intentions. So it's it's created that problem.、Uh, it's also encouraged the Chinese to. Ramp up the charm offensive to international companies, both from the U.S. and from Europe and in other areas, because they want to continue large inflows of foreign investment、uh, and looking for companies to act as a counterweight against political pressure that's coming not only from Washington but also from Europe as well. You know, to what degree does reduced dependence between these two superpowers increase the risk of greater hostilities or even conflict between the two? Well, if we really get to a point where the economies are significantly less dependent、uh, on each other, I think that is a problem. And if you look at two simple examples from the last two decades,、um, we've had an extraordinary period of peace、uh, over Taiwan, which is a kind of disputed. Uh, territory,、mm-hmm. uh, and one of the reasons for that is because the high level of economic interdependence between China and the U.S. and Taiwan means that the costs of China trying to solve、uh, that issue by military means are extremely high. I think you can also see that in the Russia-Ukraine situation that、uh, China. Has an alignment with Russia. They would probably like to do more to help them in the current situation, but they've been very, very cautious about staying away from from exporting weapon, weapons to Russia. Again, because of the costs, because of their high interdependence. So I don't think we're at a low interdependence level yet. But if、right. we move more in that direction, it could be more dangerous. So what does this all mean then for Secretary Yellen as she meets with her Chinese counterpart this week? You know, in what areas does well, the U.S. have leverage, and where does China have the upper hand? Well, I think、uh, Yellen's agenda clearly is to try and find areas where. The U.S. and China can talk to each other. She's also been, I think, a pretty significant behind-the-scenes moderating influence in U.S. policy, and she's articulated a, a positive view that there's still a lot of economic、uh, areas of, of uh, uh, common interest between the U.S. and China.、Um, so I think that's one thing that she's trying to do is, in, in a certain sense, reassure the Chinese that there is not just a purely adversarial relationship. Um, so I think that's probably her main、uh, goal: is reassurance rather than trying to get the Chinese to do something、uh, that they're reluctant to do. That's China specialist Arthur Kroeber. Arthur, thanks. Great, thank you.
The leaders of the NATO countries head to their annual meeting. It's being held in Lithuania next week with a focus once again on Russia's war on Ukraine. Sweden wants to join the alliance whose nations promise to defend each other against outside attacks. But one of the NATO allies, Turkey, has blocked that application for more than a year. President Biden meets with Sweden's Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson to talk about that today. And NPR White House reporter Deepa Shivaram will be watching. Deepa, good morning. Hey, good morning. So let's start with why Sweden wants to join NATO and why it's taking so long to get that application ratified. Yeah, this all started a little over a year ago. Sweden has long been a neutral country, but that changed after Russia invaded Ukraine. And that's when both Sweden and Finland applied for membership to NATO. The war essentially made public opinion in Sweden change to support joining this military alliance. And all countries that belong to NATO have to ratify any new members. Finland was approved earlier this year, but for Sweden... Turkey is a big holdup. They claim that Sweden is harboring Kurdish separatists whom Turkey has designated as terrorists. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan wants Sweden to extradite more than 100 people over this. And on top of all of that, there was an incident last week in Stockholm. An Iraqi man living in Sweden burned the Quran, which is the Muslim holy book outside of a mosque. The man reportedly had a permit for this demonstration because Swedish courts have said that denying it would be infringing freedom of speech. But there have been massive protests and backlash since this happened, and the Swedish foreign ministry has condemned the burning. But of course, many Muslim countries are seeing this as religious hatred, and that includes Turkey. Erdogan has also condemned this, and it's all been complicated in an already long-standing conflict. So, so for President Biden and, you know, for a number of other Western leaders, it's been a priority to try to keep NATO strong and unified in the face of Russian aggression. So what has the White House been doing to try to accelerate uh, Sweden's ratification? The administration has been in talks with Turkey, trying to sway them for months. That's included National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan traveling to Istanbul, Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting with his Turkish counterpart, and other NATO countries have been putting pressure on Turkey as well. And there's also been talks over these F-16 fighter jets. Turkey has been trying to get them from the U.S. for years. In May, President Biden talked to Erdogan, and later after that conversation, Biden publicly connected the two issues, providing the F-16s and Sweden approval into NATO. John Hurst, a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, told reporters last week that he thinks the jets should be in play now. I think that the administration could do more to be able to offer Erdogan the F-16s as part of a deal. And that might well be a decisive factor. But in order to move forward, Congress would need to approve. And Democratic Senator Bob Menendez, who leads the Foreign Relations Committee, has said he's concerned about Turkey's human rights record. So the path forward on this whole thing is a little bit unclear. So that brings us to this meeting today. What are Biden and Christensen expected to talk about? The focus today is definitely going to be on NATO and trying to expedite this ongoing process of getting Sweden ratified. The White House says they'll be talking about Russia, relations with China and climate change as well. And then on Sunday, the president's travels kick off. He's first headed to London, where he's meeting with King Charles, then that NATO summit. And then after that summit, Biden will end his trip in Finland, the newest NATO member, to meet with Nordic leaders. That is NPR's Deepa Shivram. Deepa, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, an expert with the Pew Research Center details the most recent public reaction to Supreme Court decisions. Those surveyed were widely divided based on politics, religion, and race. It's 719. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. To elevate your impact in a changing world, bc.edu slash msae. Ten years ago, U.S. intelligence contractor Edward Snowden stunned the world. He revealed government officials were surveilling private citizens around the globe. The greatest fear that I have regarding the outcome for America of these disclosures is that nothing will change. A decade later, has anything changed about government surveillance? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The latest episode of our podcast, The Common, is out. Summer is a great time to find new books to read, whether it's sitting on the beach, by the pool, or just on your couch. Host Daryl C. Murphy gets some great recommendations from Hannah Ali, one of the authors of our Beach Books newsletter. Listen to The Common wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for Beach Books at wbr.org slash newsletters. Sunny today with a high near 88. Tonight, partly cloudy and a low around 70. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 90. It's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From EBSCO, currently hiring and committed to letting people thrive. Information about hybrid and remote positions is at careers.ebsco.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The British duo Wham! became, for many, the soundtrack of the early 1980s with their fun-loving pop hits, a feel-good antidote to a world that, at the time, seemed to be growing darker from the Cold War. And now the story of Andrew Ridgely and George Michael, school friends who became global pop stars, is being told in their own words in a new Netflix documentary simply called Wham! It's directed by Chris Smith. George's interviews had to be archival. Um, But all of Andrew's, we sat down for days and days just sort of talking through that time period in a studio. And that's where, you know, his material came from. But the back and forth between the two feels so effortless. And it's just such a testament to sort of the how vivid that time has stayed within Andrew's mind. We go and doorstep record companies. Two 18-year-old boys. How cocky is that? We just stand there and insist that we had booked an appointment. We had a very disappointing response. The guy chucked the tape back over the table and said, you know, nice voice, but go away and write some hit songs. These projects often end up becoming archaeology projects in the sense that you're trying to find things from all these disparate elements. Um, You know, fortunately, we started with George Michael's estate and Andrew Ridgely and his family had collected material. So we started there, but there was so much that we had to 
find. Um, and stuff was even coming in weeks before we finished. In the documentary, George and Andrew reflect on the early days of Wham. Much of what is shown comes from their own footage and audio that they recorded themselves in their teenage years. We learned that their song Careless Whisper was not well received in its first iteration. And I'm never gonna dance again. It was one of the first three demos that they recorded on a four-track recorder at their home. And the thing that I think shocked us when we were making it was how fully formed the vision and the sound of Wham! was, even from the inception. You know, I would have assumed in getting these demo tapes that they would have just been kind of crude versions and that once they sort of, you know, had access to more experienced producers that they found their sound, but it was really there at the very beginning. And especially George's talent, you can see in the vocals on Careless Whisper on the demo. You know, in the film, we hear how George Michael struggled with being open about his sexuality. Michael did come out to Andrew Ridgely and those around the band early on, but he never did that to fans until after the band broke up. As far as you can tell, what was his thought process at that time about this? At that time, the attitudes were different, you know, and AIDS was very rampant at that time, and there was a lot of concern around that. And so I think when we listen back to the interview tapes, you know, it really came down to that they didn't, George didn't want his dad to find out. And they, they were like, you can't tell your dad. It was less about like trying to protect their careers or, you know, anything on that level, but it really was something as simple as just not wanting to tell your dad. Another dilemma that Wham had to manage was about a Christmas song. Wham's 1984 hit, Last Christmas, was about to come out, and George Michael had a feeling it was going to be the band's fourth number one hit song that year. But then he was invited to join dozens of the era's biggest stars to sing Do They Know It's Christmas as part of Band-Aid, whose proceeds went to alleviate the famine in Ethiopia. Do They Know It's Christmas ended up as that year's number one Christmas song, followed by Wham's Last Christmas at number two. I think one of the things we found so enlightening and sort of reassuring in doing, going through his interviews is that there was always this sort of absolute direct frankness and sort of honesty in his interviews. It was still a strange feeling to drive home, is, you know, with the best will in the world, trying to be the greatest altruist in the world and having given every penny that last Christmas has ever made to African relief funds. And that bastard insecure little thing that wanted his four number ones that year, you know. It's irrational and comes from a place of fear. You know, I think a lot of people would have been maybe sort of told that story differently. It was very human the way that he communicated his thoughts. He was very proud and happy and felt great to be a part of Band-Aid. But at the same time, you know, I think that there was part of them that really wanted these four number ones in one year. And they knew they had it with Last Christmas until he was recording Band-Aid and realized that that was probably going to be hard for them to beat. Yeah, and he seems very open about being conflicted about that. Yeah you know, the heart of the movie of these two guys and sort of the way that they communicate and talk about that experience. It was, you know, the crazy thing about Wham! is, you know, it lasted four years. It was uh, 82 to 86. And I remember there's footage where they're talking, you know, it felt like they were getting too old, but they left the band when they were 23. 
you know, which is so hard to believe. But when you see it and you see the grind and sort of the trajectory that they were on, you can kind of understand it. Ridgely says of Wham's breakup in the film, Wham is never going to be middle-aged or anything other than Wham. You know, I love that. He seems to understand that an era was closing and he wanted to preserve the band's image as this youthful, fun pop band. What does that say about the relationship between these two best friends that, you know, this success didn't really ruin them? I mean, I think it's a story that's hard to understand because it's very rare for people to leave at the top. But I think that there were many things at play. I think George was struggling to sort of stay within the confines of what Wham was, you know, and I think Andrew being so close and being such a good friend, it sort of understood that. And so often these stories end in a negative place. And it was something that, um, to me, the whole movie was about this temporal nature of youth. You know, it's something that is so beautiful, but it can't be sustained. It has to come to an end. And for to be at the heart of it and to understand that and to accept it, there's such a gracious quality to that that I don't think you see that often. Chris Smith is the director of the Netflix documentary, Wham! Chris, thank you. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having us. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, there's a race on to reach Massachusetts residents who may lose their health insurance because of changes in Medicaid rules. It's 729. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. New research found that police drug busts could actually increase the number of overdoses and drug deaths in communities struggling with addiction. By not having law enforcement, public health, behavioral health, harm reduction, all working together, we're going to end up with more people being harmed. Public health experts say police must evolve their tactics to save lives. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. A federal judge has imposed social media restrictions on some federal agencies and Biden administration officials. The Republicans who filed the suit are calling the ruling a victory for free speech. NPR's Marie Andrusevich has more. A 2022 lawsuit claimed the Biden administration threatened social media companies with regulatory action in order to squelch what they characterize as misinformation during the pandemic. In his ruling, the judge said that the Biden administration exclusively targeted conservative views. The White House has said that imposing these social media restrictions would limit the government's ability to combat misinformation. President Biden welcomes the Swedish prime minister to the White House this afternoon. The two leaders are expected to discuss security cooperation between their countries and their agreement that Sweden should join the NATO alliance as soon as possible. London police plan to reopen an investigation into a party held at the headquarters of the governing Conservative Party in violation of COVID restrictions. Phil Marks reports. London police will restart their inquiry into a December 2020 party attended by senior Conservative figures after a British newspaper published video appearing to show behaviour at the gathering in breach of COVID-19 lockdown rules at the time. 
Police will meanwhile end separate investigations into possible breaches at then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson's official residences. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Sumner Tunnel is closed this morning and it will stay closed through the end of August. It's going to mean delays for anyone headed from East Boston and Logan Airport into downtown. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more on what's being done. Crews shut down the nearly 100-year-old tunnel overnight to begin repair work. Massachusetts Department of Transportation's Jonathan Gulliver says they'll remove deteriorating concrete from the ceiling and install new arches. It's going to extend the lifespan of that tunnel for a very long time and add a lot of structural integrity to the existing tunnel. The tunnel is scheduled to remain closed until August 31st. Tips for navigating the shutdown can be found online at WBUR.org. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. State police are investigating an apparent murder-suicide in Raynham. Investigators say yesterday morning a 43-year-old man shot and killed a 30-year-old woman. They say he then died by suicide. Police say the two were known to be in a relationship. There's a new video interpretation service available at all Boston Public Library locations. The service lets visitors and library staff communicate in more than 200 languages. Priscilla Foley is the director of neighborhood services for the library. She hopes this new technology will increase accessibility. For people that may be you know, first coming into this country, seeing a space where they can just use a computer, get help, and it's all just available to them. Having this also be in the language that they're most comfortable will be a tremendous benefit. The libraries previously used multilingual staff members to provide language support. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Red Sox will host the Rangers tonight in the second of a three-game series. Boston lost to Texas yesterday 6-2 in a game that was delayed for nearly two hours by rain. Sunny today and we'll have a high in the upper 80s. Tonight it falls to around 70 and some clouds move back in. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high back in the upper 80s. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. We're going to take a look now at the potential political implications of some recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions. This is something Carol Darity of the Pew Research Center studies through polling. Steve Inskeep spoke with him about the role the high court can play in elections, starting with last year's Dobbs case that overturned the constitutional right to abortion. You see overwhelming share of Democrats, even all four in 10 Republicans say it should be legal in all or most cases. So public opinion is pretty much on the side of the legality of abortion. And the reaction to the court's ruling last year was 
immediate and very powerful. So that may still be the biggest Supreme Court decision of recent years in its political impact, but we have these newer decisions, and let's work through them. The Supreme Court said that President Biden may not unilaterally cancel more than $400 billion worth of student loan debt. What is the political effect of that? Most polls have shown the public divided on this program. There is overwhelming support among people who hold student debt and who would be eligible for the program. 80% or more favor the program. And many of those are young people. Many of those are people of color. Overall public opinion, though, is divided. And so it's, it's, it's very different than, say, the abortion uh, issue. Well, let's talk about those people who are most directly affected. I find myself thinking about that group of voters. Are they discouraged and disappointed with President Biden because he wasn't able to deliver in a permanent way? Or are they unhappy with Republicans and the judges that Republican presidents have appointed because they stood in the way of this program? That's the question on a lot of these cases from this term. You know, in this case, do the people who hold this debt, do they turn their ire towards the administration, as you say, or towards the court itself? And, you know, the court's ratings haven't been lower in three decades. And, you know, young people in particular are very negative towards the court. Does this drive them even more in a more negative direction? And perhaps turn it is into something of a voting issue. We, t- we seldom see the court itself as a voting issue, but it's possible that the court could become an issue in the 2024 campaign. Well, here's one that has gotten a lot of public attention, also having to do with education. The court said it is not constitutionally permissible to use race as a factor in deciding who gets into elite universities. What's the political effect of that? The public overall is negative towards the use of race and ethnicity in in college admissions. Mm -hmm. 50% disapprove, 33% approve. In this case, I think the people who tend to be most engaged and interested are are black Americans, and especially black Americans with a four-year college degree, 64% of them approve these programs. So I think in that case, it has a possible effect of... uh, you know, engaging black voters again for the 2024 election. Let me ask about another case that the court ruled on. The court ruled in favor on the side of a Colorado web designer who wanted to start a wedding web page business and wanted assurance in advance that she would not have to serve same-sex couples. How does the public feel about that issue? This is a very complicated issue that involves free speech and religious principles, as well as discrimination. You know, in our survey, we focused on does this designer have this option if serving LGBT people conflict with their free speech rights? 60% said, no, they don't have to serve people. But on the other hand, our surveys and other surveys have shown the public strongly objects to discrimination against groups, discrimination against transgendered individuals, LGBT people. And so it's a collision of these two principles, and it'll be interesting to see how this this unfolds over time and whether this leads to broader discrimination. In that case, I think you can probably say the public might object on the basis of, of sexual orientation. So like the abortion ruling itself, we might discover six months from now that one of these rulings is really significant, even though none of them seems clearly to be so right now. Right. And especially I would say that the student loan uh, decision impact 
because when people feel the effects of this in their everyday lives and they and they're asked to repay these loans after you know being on hiatus for a while i think i think that could have a real impact and you know again is it the biden administration that's on the hook for this for failing to deliver or the court itself and and i don't think we know the answer to that yet carol doherty director of political research at the pew research center thanks so much thank you The U.S. government and its allies have condemned China's decision to issue bounties for the arrest of eight Hong Kong democracy activists who have fled to the West. The move has sparked particular tension between the British and Chinese governments, as Willem Marx reports from London. This past week, officials in Hong Kong issued arrest warrants for eight pro-democracy activists, offering a bounty worth around $130,000 per person for information that might lead to their arrests. The U.S. State Department condemned the warrants, calling them a, quote, dangerous precedent that threatens the human rights and fundamental freedoms of people all over the world. With some activists based in Britain, UK Foreign Minister James Cleverley said the British would not tolerate Chinese attempts to, quote, intimidate and silence individuals in the UK. Chinese officials in London publicly criticised Cleverley for interfering in the internal affairs of Hong Kong. Hong Kong's chief executive, John Lee, meanwhile warned the activists would be, quote, pursued for their entire lives. But only last week, Britain's cleverly was arguing a visit to China might help address Beijing's actions in Hong Kong. Director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London, Professor Kerry Brown, calls that unlikely. On this issue, Hong Kong, when Britain speaks in China, it's speaking against 200 years of ill feeling and drastic differences between each side. So I don't think it's going to change any views. After months of protests over an extradition law roiled Hong Kong in 2019, authorities introduced national security legislation in 2020 to prevent further protests by criminalizing behavior seen as subversive, including calls for Hong Kong to separate from mainland China. Authorities immediately began a crackdown on Hong Kong's vocal pro-independence movement. They arrested hundreds of activists, while many others, particularly high-profile ones, escaped overseas fleeing to the US, Canada, Australia and Britain. One of them, Nathan Law, famously won UK asylum, and the British government soon offered millions in Hong Kong, once a British colony, a pathway to citizenship. That angered China's leaders, according to Professor Kerry Brown. The Chinese government was not happy because it felt it was interfering in its internal affairs. It felt like Britain was trying to collude with troublemakers and people it regarded very negatively in Hong Kong and giving them a safe haven to continue their agitation abroad. Not so long ago, British officials worked to bolster economic ties with Beijing. These days, after so much bad blood, they may struggle to salvage the relationship anytime soon. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks in London. This is NPR News. You're with WBMR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, NATO leaders are working to overcome objections by Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to Sweden joining the military alliance. We'll have clear skies and temperatures in the upper 80s today. It grows partly overcast tonight and falls to around 70, mostly sunny tomorrow and near 90. It's 70 degrees in Boston. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. A Sutton manufacturing company is the new owner of an industrial lot in Westminster. A report obtained by the Worcester Business Journal shows Unified 2 Global Packaging purchased the site for $7.4 million. The company has not filed any development plans for the lot. It also recently purchased industrial space in Boylston and Sutton. Unified 2 is connected to the Kraft Group, which is owned by Patriot's owner, Robert Kraft. A new restaurant from celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay opens today in Boston. Gordon Ramsay Burger will be inside the Canopy by Hilton Hotel on the Greenway. This is his second restaurant here. The chef opened Ramsay's Kitchen in the Back Bay last January. It's 744. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. An $11 million campaign to help low-income families and individuals keep their health insurance is rolling out statewide. It's a response to the nationwide change in the federal Medicaid program. WB Wars Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports those changes sparked a sweeping effort to protect health coverage for immigrants and other people who could get left behind. At the Community Health Center in downtown Lowell, two staff members make a phone call, one of dozens that day. They reach a 29-year-old patient from Lemonster. She needs help renewing her insurance from the state Medicaid program, MassHealth. Patient navigator Abbas Tanner asks her a series of questions about her family, her income, and her immigration status. Just wanted to let you know that whenever you have an update in regards to your immigration status, you can always call us and let us know so we can help you find a better coverages. 
Interpreter Maria Cruz translates into Portuguese. This is critical work right now. For three years during the pandemic, federal rules allowed people on Medicaid programs to keep their benefits indefinitely. But that grace period has ended. Now members have to prove they qualify or they could lose their coverage. Brenda Rodriguez is Chief Strategy and Finance Officer at Lowell Community Health Center. She's most concerned about patients who don't speak English or lack easy access to technology. They may not have a computer or a working cell phone to follow through and fill out a form online, or they may have other barriers. MassHealth covers 2.4 million people. State officials hope to renew up to half of them automatically, but the rest will have to show income statements and other documents to keep their benefits. If they don't take action, there's a possibility that they may lose coverage, and that's what nobody wants. Maria Gonzalez helped to launch the outreach campaign at Healthcare for All, a consumer advocacy group working with the state. The multilingual campaign is designed to reach every person affected by these insurance changes. Outreach workers are even going door to door in Chelsea, Brockton, Framingham, and a dozen other communities. Gonzalez says they knocked on more than 260,000 doors in just two months. And we have had 55,000 conversations. This is the start of a year-long effort to get Mass Health members to do three things. Update their contact information, watch for important mail that comes in a blue envelope, and just call, respond right away. Gonzalez says enrollment specialists are working across the state to help people renew their mass health insurance or move to other plans. The hope is to prevent people from getting kicked off coverage for failing to return forms, which happened in other states that moved more quickly to trim their Medicaid rolls. The resources are never enough, but we're definitely investing more than many other states and the commitment is there. Still, advocates worry these efforts could fall short. Eloisa Galvao leads the Brazilian women's group in Brighton. She says the state should allow more time to complete enrollment forms. This is happening too fast. If you don't know how it works and if you don't speak the language, it's scary, scary, scary. So I am very concerned about this. It's too early to know how many Massachusetts residents may lose coverage. At a recent public meeting, State Health Secretary Kate Walsh warned it will be a rough summer. People are going to show up for their kids' school physical and here they're not enrolled. And that's what we're trying to avoid, but it definitely is going to be hand-to-hand combat. It's a fight to maintain a number the state is proud of. 97% of Massachusetts residents have health insurance. If people start losing coverage... It would be a black mark for a state known for protecting access to health care. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Coming up at 820, the U.S. Coast Guard's investigation into the Titan submersible tragedy is underway, but some experts are already saying that it could have been avoided if the submersible's designers had followed principles established by the Navy. It's 750.
At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station, and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Israel has pulled its troops out of a West Bank refugee camp after a raid that left at least a dozen Palestinians dead. Police are searching for a motive after nine people, including two children, were shot in Washington, D.C. early this morning. And in Massachusetts, the Sumner Tunnel is now closed, forcing commuters to find new ways between East Boston and downtown. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. It'll be sunny today and in the upper 80s. Temperatures fall to around 70 tonight and it'll grow a bit cloudy. But back to mostly sunny skies tomorrow and it'll be near 90. It's 70 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. REI, the shopping mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, has a reputation as a progressive brand. But the company is balked at recognizing its newly unionized workers, leaving some staff disenchanted. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. Claire Chang came to REI just over five years ago, the first and only retail job she ever considered taking. Yeah, I only wanted to work at REI. The chain's reputation precedes it. REI promotes sustainability and famously closes on Black Friday, urging people to play outdoors. It gives workers a sabbatical, a paid month off after 15 years. And it's built as a co-op, co-owned by its shoppers. I mean, we all started working at REI because of, you know, its values. Chang says we, meaning her team at a flagship store in Manhattan. After health and safety concerns during COVID, followed by furloughs and job cuts, in March 2022, they formed REI's first union shop. Workers knew they faced a big corporation, but they thought maybe REI would be different. Like they say they are. So we we were hopeful that they would voluntarily recognize the union and, you know, meet us at the table and negotiate in good faith. REI did not voluntarily recognize the union. Since then, seven more stores have unionized in far-flung parts of the country. A ninth one had a vote that remains too close to call. Now, pro-union employees accuse the company of breaking labor laws, threatening workers, disciplining and firing organizers. REI denies this. I do not believe a union will serve REI employees' best interests. That's CEO Eric Arts on a corporate podcast last year. In a statement, REI representatives argued staff get industry-leading wages and benefits and plenty of ways to reach out to leadership. I believe the presence of union representation will impact our ability to communicate and work directly with our employees and resolve concerns at the speed the world is moving. A version of this has played out at other companies that spend decades building a progressive image of a generous employer. At Trader Joe's, workers have clashed over pluses and minuses of a union. At Starbucks, its anti-union fight is now a prominent plotline in its American story. Denise Rousseau is a professor of organizational behavior at Carnegie Mellon University. The idea that a firm that purports to be progressive and sustainable plays hardball with its workers 
on economic issues when it's actually doing pretty well, uh, I think it makes it hard to keep that message. After more than a year of negotiations, REI and workers at the Manhattan and other stores are nowhere close to a collective bargaining contract. Unions accuse the retailer of delay tactics, which the company rejects. Shortly after the first store unionized last year, REI raised pay nationwide, one to three dollars an hour for most workers. We were all very like ecstatic when we heard about that. Jesse Reynolds works at REI in Washington state. And then almost immediately, within a couple months, they cut our hours. Hours are the most common issue REI workers bring up. Pro-union staff want guaranteed hours. They describe schedules so inconsistent that a part-timer might get 14 hours one week, then 24 hours the next, and four the following. We each talk to our managers and explain that, hey, we, we can't make rent. Can I have a couple more hours? Like, I really need this. Reynolds' store just unionized last month. It's in Bellingham, north of Seattle. Before the vote, corporate leaders traveled up to the store. She says the break room was flooded with leaflets about drawbacks of unionizing. It's just, it is disappointing, you know. That's Claire Chang again from New York. That REI has reacted in this manner and continues to double down. Her store is in a big dispute over those raises last year. The newly unionized shop could only get the pay bump by signing a temporary deal with the company, promising not to strike, among other things. A few weeks ago, when the workers refused to renew the deal, REI took their raises away. My pay cut was close to $4 an hour. You know, I am pretty much living paycheck to paycheck. A lot of my coworkers are. They hit a lot of people pretty hard. Federal labor officials are now reviewing this and two dozen other claims of unfair labor practices against REI, all of which the company says are without merit. Ching also says something other organizers told me. This can be a great job. We love the outdoors. We want people to experience that, you know, and the truth is, like, people... People really enjoy working at REI, so we want to stay and make it better. Even if it takes a while. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. If you've been dealing with sweltering weather lately, imagine yourself in the Rocky Mountains, where people are still skiing. KUNC's Lucas Brady-Woods has this report on the summertime snow fun. It's sunny and nearly 70 degrees at the base of Copper Mountain Resort, about 90 minutes west of Denver. And somehow, on a grassy green slope in the middle of a pine forest, there's a big, bright white pile of snow. I mean, it's kind of just, oh my god, like a dream. I don't know, it's a dream, seriously. The elevation here is nearly 10,000 feet above sea level, and it's a great hangout for snowboarders like Elisa Brycourt. This is what we love. It brings us all together. We get to meet up with our friends, hang out. Um, you don't even have to text anyone. Everyone's just already here. Everyone is about 50 people who paid $25 each to slide around on a pile of snow roughly the size of a football field. It's been sculpted by big tractors to create shapes for skiers and snowboarders to fly off of and do tricks on. Jay Scott, who works for the resort, says it's been a while since they've been able to offer this. A lot of people who have been here, you know, five or so years ago when we used to have it are stoked to have it back. Riders have to hike back up when they get to the bottom, but nobody's complaining. I am wearing athletic shorts and a t-shirt, and we're skiing in July. Nate Sunderhues from Denver braved some heavy traffic to get here today. It's worth it because, um, man, the mountains are just so beautiful, and I just really enjoy being up here. Ski resorts typically close around Easter. 
When the resort opened up what they call the hike park last week, snow-hungry locals ate it up. George Searcy, a 13-year-old skier, is working on a trick called a three-swap. This is a kind of a new trick to me, and so um, hopefully it only takes like eight attempts. He and his little brother are wearing t-shirts and not worried about falling in the snow. No, not really. You're Cold is fun. Low temperatures are forecast to be in the 40s here this week, so the snow won't last all summer. 34-year-old Colorado native Mark Lynn grew up competing in snowboard events and calls the sport his life. It's been a cool day for me. I rode my bike this morning, skateboarded. Now we're snowboarding, so kind of a Colorado trifecta. For NPR News, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods at Copper Mountain. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Isbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel says a raid on a West Bank refugee camp that killed 12 Palestinians is over, but is warning that there may be more such military operations. It's Wednesday, July 5th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, Arupa Shanoi. Coming up, police in Philadelphia say the 40-year-old man who went on a shooting spree Monday night had no connection to the victims. On what was supposed to be a beautiful summer evening, this armed and armored individual wreaked havoc, shooting seven, killing five, including children. Meanwhile, new research shows that the survivors of shootings are left with long-term challenges. They're at a higher risk of PTSD, of developing other issues like substance abuse and suicidal thoughts. Also this hour, the Sumner Tunnel is now closed. We have the latest on how the shutdown is playing out on the roads and on the team. In sports, Red Sox lose upper 80s today and sunny. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Israel is withdrawing troops from a West Bank refugee camp following a raid earlier this week that Israel says was successful in inflicting heavy damage on militant groups there. Two days of intensive fighting has left 12 Palestinians dead and about 100 wounded. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from the Janine refugee camp. We have met families surveying the damage and returning to their homes after they fled for several days. We've driven through roads torn up by Israeli army bulldozers, confronting bombs that Palestinian fighters had planted under the asphalt. And because of that infrastructure damage, the water and electricity is still largely not working in the Janine refugee camp. We have now seen thousands gathered outside the hospital morgue for funeral processions. We've seen some carry the bodies of Palestinian fighters who were killed. And Israel says it arrested 30 men and confiscated many weapons during its incursion in Jenin, although we saw today several dozen young gunmen armed with large M16 rifles. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jenin. 
A federal judge has restricted some federal agencies and officials of the Biden administration from communicating with social media companies to moderate their content. Kat Zakreski is a tech policy reporter with The Washington Post. She explains the basis behind the lawsuit that was filed by Republican attorneys general in Louisiana and Missouri. For years, Republicans have argued that social media companies' policies to address disinformation related to elections and public health have resulted in unfair censorship of their views. The Republican AGs brought those arguments to court, subpoenaing thousands of emails between Biden officials and tech companies. That's Kat Zakreski of The Washington Post reporting. The UN's nuclear watchdog has approved a plan by Japan to dump more than a million tons of wastewater from the destroyed Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. Ashley Westerman has more. In a report released Tuesday, the IAEA said that after a two-year study, it had concluded that the plan, quote, is consistent with relevant international safety standards and that the discharged treated wastewater will have a negligible radiological impact on people and the environment. However, many scientists say there is not enough evidence to ensure that harmful elements will not be released into the ocean that could bind to the sediment and living organisms such as fish and humans. It is this possibility of contamination and subsequent threat to livelihoods that also has many countries and their residents across the Pacific opposing the plan. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman in Manila. This is NPR News. Tensions appeared to be easing in France. Violent demonstrations broke out in cities across the nation after a 17-year-old boy was killed by police during a traffic stop in Paris last week. French President Emmanuel Macron has met with the mayors of hundreds of communities affected by the riots. He says he plans to introduce an emergency law that will allow them to rebuild faster. The United Kingdom's National Health Service turns 75 today. It was founded after World War II to provide free, taxpayer-funded health care for all. But as NPR's Lauren Frere reports, the system has been ailing in recent years. The UK's National Health Service is a beloved institution. A government minister once called it the closest thing Brits have to a national religion. Politicians try to outdo each other in speeches about who loves it more. But think tanks say politicians have not done a good job of funding the NHS. It's been gutted by 13 years of conservative government's austerity measures. There are now near daily strikes, and it can be dangerously difficult to get a doctor's appointment. Today, the UK royals are hosting a tea party for NHS staff, and both Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and his rival opposition leader Keir Starmer are extolling the virtues of universal health care at an NHS celebration at Westminster Abbey. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. Stocks closed lower across Asia today. Markets in China, Japan, and Hong Kong all posted losses. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Sumner Tunnel is closed this morning and it'll stay closed through the end of August. Drivers have to find a new way to get from East Boston to downtown. To help ease congestion, the T is making the Blue Line free for riders. The ferry from East Boston to Long Wharf is also free. Fares will be discounted on the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. Revere Mayor Patrick Keefe says people coming from just about any direction will be impacted. We need to make sure the next two months 
and we plan well in advance. We leave a little bit earlier. We ditch the drive. We get on our expanded public service, and we do our part. It's going to be two months of some pain, but this will help us in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says steps are being taken so residents of East Boston aren't cut off from the rest of the city. To ensure that critical services remain available throughout the closure, we'll be adding frontline ambulances with at least one and up to two dedicated ambulances deployed and available to respond to emergencies in East Boston at any given time. We have a guide to help you get around the Sumner Tunnel closure. Check it out at WBUR.org. The police chief in Lawrence has abruptly retired. Chief Roy Vasque left amid an investigation into the department. Vasque was placed on leave in January. City officials have not said what the investigation is about or if the chief's retirement is related to that inquiry. Massachusetts recently established a so-called Green Bank. The new institution is designed to help finance climate-friendly, affordable housing projects in the state. The goal is twofold, to help reduce carbon emissions from new or existing buildings and to make housing more affordable. WBUR's Miriam Wasser explains how it works. At the simplest level, a Green Bank makes it easier for people to borrow money for certain types of projects. It may offer loans with very low interest rates or long repayment periods. It's sweeteners for someone who's going out looking for financing. Caitlin Peel-Sloan is with the Conservation Law Foundation. She says the other important thing a green bank does is use state money to attract private investors. The state will help bear some of the risk of non-payment to make it an attractive, safe investment option. For example, the Connecticut Green Bank has spurred $7 of private investment for every dollar of state money it's put in. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. The Red Sox and Rangers meet again tonight at Fenway. Boston lost to Texas yesterday 6-2. Sunny skies and mid-80s today. Clear overnight with lows in the 60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid to upper 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Michelle Martin. Russia's attack on Ukraine has prompted a push for NATO expansion. Sweden and Finland applied to join the alliance, and while Finland's bid went through, Sweden's has been opposed by Turkey and Hungary. Sweden's prime minister meets today with President Biden, who wants the Nordic nation admitted as soon as possible. We wanted to get more insight on Turkey's opposition to the Swedish bid, so we called out here Joshkun of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He previously served as deputy permanent representative for Turkey's NATO mission. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So as briefly as you can, can you just, just tell us what exactly is Turkey's problem with Sweden joining NATO? Turkey doesn't necessarily have a problem. It's traditionally been supportive of NATO enlargement and of what is called the open door policy within the alliance. But when it comes to Finland and Sweden, Turkey had uh, two main issues. One was it argued that both nations were implementing arms embargoes on Turkey. And second, it complained that there were various terror groups in these countries, uh, as perceived by Turkey, that were acting against Turkey's interests. And it asked that these countries that wanted to join NATO 
act against these terror groups. Now, Finland, as far as Turkey is concerned, met those thresholds. So Turkey greenlighted Finland. But the problem continues uh, as far as Sweden is concerned in Ankara's view. And that's where the problem is. You know, obviously, there are different views about what actually constitutes a terrorist threat or a terrorist sort of supporter. So is there any... How can we put this objective basis for believing that that is, in fact, the case? That's obviously an important question because it boils down to the definition of terrorism and how you define it. And and I think that's where there is a gap between the Turkish expectations and the legal restrictions that Sweden faces. That said, Sweden has promised to take certain steps, including the amending of its constitution. And it has delivered on those. But there are continuing propaganda activities that are visible out in public that are disturbing Turkey. Sweden argues that legally speaking, it cannot curtail these types of activities, whereas Turkey wants it to act and take further steps. The problem has been convoluted by another dimension, which is the burning of the uh, the Holy Book of Islam in Sweden, which again is legally permitted in Sweden as an expression of freedom. But that has infuriated Turkey further, including President Erdogan. It's not part of the agreement that Sweden and and Turkey had met, Mm -hmm. uh, but Turkey is further aggravated by this issue. Could we look at it from a different perspective, though, with the war in Ukraine is effectively on NATO's doorstep. I mean, you know, Romania, for example, is a NATO member and it's right there, right? So is there something that the Turkish president, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has to gain or is gaining by delaying Sweden's ascension? I think so, yes. Uh, that's that's definitely one of the calculations taking place in Ankara because Erdogan is trying to leverage this issue, which is geopolitically speaking, one of the most important developments in European security, Sweden and Finland deciding to join NATO. And he's trying to leverage this in his relations with the West. That's definitely a consideration. So, you know, Hungary's foreign minister said this week that his country will support Sweden's bid if Turkey changes its stance. Do you have a sense of whether this would influence Turkey's position in any way? Not necessarily, and not, not necessarily, and I think Hungary is just basically standing behind Turkey. Um, they have their own issues as far as uh, Sweden is concerned, and a consideration vis-a-vis Russia. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily implementing the calculation in Ankara. And before we let you go, Swedes are in Washington today to talk about their country's NATO bid. Is there something that President Biden could offer? Yes, I think a renewed commitment by Sweden and possibly a an opening uh, towards Ankara from uh, Washington could help the process. Alper Jashkun of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Mass shootings, incidents where four or more people are shot, marred July 4th celebrations in North Carolina, Ohio, and Michigan. No one was killed in those, but they followed two deadly shootings the night before in Fort Worth, Texas, and Philadelphia. Mass shootings have been rising in recent years, along with other types of gun violence, making firearms a major public health issue in this country. I spoke with NPR's health correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee, about the scale of this problem. This year, already, we've had nearly 350 mass shootings. And if you want to get a sense of the scale for all kinds of gun violence, we've already lost more than 21,000 people just since January 1 of this year. And more than half of those deaths were, in fact, suicides. And, you know, obviously, we're not counting those who are injured, who have to live with those injuries for the rest of their lives. And to give you a sense of just how many people in America gun violence touches, a recent poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that nearly one in five Americans say they've lost a family member to gun violence and a similar number say they've witnessed someone getting shot. And those numbers are even higher in communities of color. 
So just to pick up on something that you just said, when we talk about the toll of gun violence, we're not just talking about the people who have died. And we're not just talking about the people who are injured, mm -hmm. sometimes grievously. We're also talking about people who have to live with this, who witness this, or who are caring for family members who have been injured, you know, sometimes with mm -hmm. lifelong injuries. So, so, so what do we know about the mental health toll of all this? There's a tremendous mental health toll of gun violence. Now, let's start with mass shootings, for example. I spoke with psychologist Robin Gerwich at Duke University, and here's what she told me. Anytime a community is impacted by large-scale mass violence, the community is changed forever. The names of those communities are now linked with mass violence events, whether it is Sandy Hook, whether it is Oklahoma City, Columbine. There's so many. Gerwitz says that the people who are closest to the acts of violence, those who witnessed it, maybe they have injuries, people who've lost loved ones, they are at highest risk of long-term mental health issues. And in the immediate aftermath of these incidents, people can end up having symptoms like feeling hypervigilant, uh, having trouble sleeping. Maybe they don't feel as comfortable going on about their daily lives because their overall sense of safety is just shattered. Do we know whether people continue to experience these, these symptoms of trauma over time? So the good news, Michelle, is that most people will recover in time, but a significant minority, about 25%, will continue to struggle in the long run. Um, they're at a higher risk of PTSD, of developing other issues like substance abuse and suicidal thoughts. And children can be vulnerable to these symptoms too, especially if their parents and caregivers are struggling, which is what happens when people don't get the mental health care support, the social support, not just in the immediate aftermath, but in the long run, because what we see is that once there's a mass shooting or an act of violence, communities will get support right away, but those supports tend to dwindle over time. But experts I spoke to said it's really important to keep those supports and services going so that communities have a chance at healing in the long run. That is NPR's Ritu Chatterjee. Ritu, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. During the COVID pandemic, a lot of people got pets, but now some people are finding they can no longer afford to take care of those pets. So animal shelters, particularly ones with no-kill policies, are packed. Hayat Punjwani with KUT visited an overcrowded shelter in Austin. Walking into the Austin Animal Center, visitors are met with crates of loud dogs filling its hallways. Two or three puppies are housed in the same kennel, originally meant for cats. The center's loading dock out back is lined with crates with large dogs, all looking sad. They're separated by cardboard to avoid agitating each other. Fans point towards the dogs as temperatures rise to the triple digits. Kelsey Clare is with the center. So the building was designed pre-no-kill, and we've had to do a lot of retrofitting to make it work for no-kill operations. She says the shelter was built to accommodate 300 dogs and 160 cats. That was before the no-kill policy took effect 10 years ago in Austin. Now there are over 500 dogs and over 600 cats. They're supposed to live out their days in the shelter or be adopted. Every resource, every person's time is spent just getting through the day, providing the, what care we can to the animals. No-kill animal shelters across the South are waiving adoption fees asking folks to volunteer while they face staffing shortages, and are constantly looking for foster homes. 
In metro Atlanta, the no-kill shelter in DeKalb County is packed, too. Here's Tiki artist from the Lifeline Animal Project there. We typically would like to see around 450 animals, 470 tops. And right now we're sitting at 627. So that just gives you some idea. She says cost of living is a factor in people giving up their animals. Atlanta has extremely high rental rates right now. And when you add on those fees for having an animal in your apartment building, for example, or house, um, it gets extremely expensive. And in Pensacola, Florida, overcrowding is also an issue. John Robinson runs that shelter. We're over capacity. We've been that way for months. To keep a no-kill status, shelters need to save 90% of their animals each year. Other shelters can euthanize animals for space. Some no-kill shelters transport animals to northern states to make room. But the Austin Animal Center has gotten backlash on that practice from locals, who say they should be able to adopt those animals. There's a push to increase spay and neuter services, but there's just not enough veterinarians in places like Pensacola. There's one controversial solution no one wants to talk about. Doing away with the no-kill policy. Even PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, says policies like no-kill can do more harm than good. Rachel Bellis is with the group. The idea of no-kill is, it's a wonderful idea. Who wouldn't want to just have all these animals? Nobody has to euthanize animals and they're living these wonderful lives. But that's just not the reality. Reversing no-kill practices is something all of these shelters are trying to avoid. But Claire with the Austin Animal Center says... The current system is not sustainable. Nobody wants to look at a healthy, adoptable animal and say you can't live because we have no space. But finding that space is a challenge with no simple solution. For NPR News, I'm Haya Panjwani in Austin. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, pets adopted during the pandemic that people don't want anymore are overwhelming no-kill animal shelters across the southern U.S. It's 820. Ten years ago, U.S. intelligence contractor Edward Snowden stunned the world. He revealed government officials were surveilling private citizens around the globe. The greatest fear that I have regarding the outcome for America of these disclosures is that nothing will change. A decade later, has anything changed about government surveillance? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Clear skies and a high near 88 today. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting those working to improve the nation's immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at carnegie.org slash greatimmigrants. 
and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The U.S. Coast Guard is investigating the cause of the catastrophic implosion that killed all five people on board the Titan submersible. Expert submariners say the tragedy could have been avoided by following the Navy's design principles. Steve Walsh with WHRO in Norfolk has a story. In April 1963, one of the Navy's first nuclear submarines imploded off the New England coast, killing 129 people. Something caused the sub to sink beyond its rated depth until it was crushed under the pressure, says James Bryant, a retired submarine captain. As the hull compresses, things groan and creak, things move around. You probably would have seen brackets holding up pipes breaking. They were very likely spraying of water. Bryant is part of a group that is pressing the Navy to release the full investigation. Sixty years after the accident, the cause is still heavily debated. During the early years of the Cold War, the Navy wanted to get nuclear subs into the fleet quickly. The USS Thresher was fitted with new equipment, and the crew wasn't given enough time to train, he says. They didn't really understand, have had the experience operating a submarine, training on it when they went to sea. So whenever it happened, they were overcome. Ronald Eugene Wolf. The accident may have been caused by a faulty reactor design, a defective part, or crew error. Memorial services like the one held at the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in New Hampshire in 2013 are still held at bases around the country. Richard K. Fisher. After the accident, the Navy ordered a complete overhaul of its sub-program. Now every part added to a submarine is thoroughly tested. Each sailor and each shipbuilder knows their role in safety. The Navy lost 16 submarines to accidents before the Thresher. Afterwards, the Navy lost only one in 1968, and it hadn't been through the new subsafe program. Even the memorials are part of the safety culture, says MIT professor Nancy Levison. One of the biggest problems in subsafe today is it's been so successful that they try and keep up the memory because otherwise, if you haven't had an accident in your whole career, how do you keep people believing that you still can have one? Levison has spent a career analyzing major disasters. NASA brought her in after the Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated on reentry in 2003. She took NASA engineers to see Navy subs being built. There, people in charge of safety can't be overruled by project managers in charge of deadlines and controlling costs. She's frustrated by comments from OceanGate founder Stockton Rush. Before his death in the Titan catastrophe, He had said in interviews that safety could stifle innovation. Levison said she's fought that argument her whole career. You don't stifle innovation when someone tells you that your innovation is unsafe, but you use it anyway. Stupid engineering. That we want to stifle. Building things that we know are going to fail. What good is that? The subsafe culture is unique even in the Navy. And it's a hard ethos to duplicate, Levison said. OceanGate didn't hire former Navy submarine officers steeped in subsafe, like Tom Shugart. He thinks the Titan tragedy could have been avoided. The kind of questions when somebody saw that maintenance, design, and construction wasn't being done the way it's done in the Navy, that maybe corners were being cut in the interest of innovation and whatnot, could have raised some red flags about how business was being done. But he adds real problems have to be confronted before the boat dives, especially in the unforgiving world around the Titanic. 
when you have an implosion that occurs at a depth that the vessel is supposed to be safely operated at, then yeah, there's not much you can do at that point. It's something the Navy learned at great cost in 1963 with the USS Thresher and works hard to remember. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh in Norfolk. Fast fashion is fun for many people because it's a cheap way to keep up with the trends. But it comes at a heavy price for the environment. It turns out that fashion has become one of the most polluting industries in the world. But some innovators are looking for ways to change that. NPR's Iman Maani has this report. A lot of clothing that gets tossed out ends up in landfills or gets incinerated. And the problem's only gotten worse due to demand for cheap, trendy, and disposable clothing. The production is growing, the consumption is growing, the amount of textile apparel disposed of every year is continued to grow. That's Ting Ti, who chairs the Department of Apparel Merchandising, Design and Textiles at Washington State University. Entrepreneurs and designers are now looking to circular design to reduce the industry's impact on the environment. When people started designing a product, they already think about the whole life cycle of the product. That includes reusing materials to keep them from becoming waste. Amber Cycle in downtown LA is helping to turn discarded clothing into yarn. We collect material from all different sorts of places, secondhand clothing stores, companies that have material that they are going to normally send to landfill. Amber Cycle co-founder Shay Sethi says the clothing goes into a machine that breaks down the fabric. Old clothing gets fed in. The process takes about two hours at about the temperature it takes to cook a pizza. And the output is a chip or a resin. So when you want to make a yarn, you buy this resin and you spin a yarn from it. Sethi says he and Amber Cycle co-founder Moby Ahmed cooked up the idea when they were in college. We just had the question, you know, what happens to this bag of t-shirts that I'm ready to donate? Sethi says the process goes beyond traditional recycling. In order to achieve circularity for fashion, the process of converting an end-of-life garment to new yarns needs to be reimagined. In traditional recycling, the quality of the material is slightly reduced each time it's recycled. The world we want to live in is one in which that material does not lose any quality in that process of regenerating. Sethi says, for now, AmberCycle can only do this with polyester, but the company is looking to expand it to other materials. If you're thinking of sending in your own clothes, Sethi says, hold off. Please do not <laughs> send us any more stuff. We have too much stuff, um, but, uh, but, it's, yeah, but people somehow find our address and send us stuff. Iman Ma'ani, NPR News, Los Angeles. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today's top stories are coming up next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. WBUR transportation reporter Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports from Logan Airport as this first morning of the Sumner Tunnel closure gets underway. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, now through July 30th, amrep.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden meets the Swedish prime minister at the White House today. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports they'll discuss Sweden's desire to join NATO. The focus today is definitely going to be on NATO and trying to expedite this ongoing process of getting Sweden ratified. The White House says they'll be talking about Russia, relations with China and climate change as well. And then on Sunday, the president's travels kick off. He's first headed to London, where he's meeting with King Charles, then that NATO summit. And then after that summit, Biden will end his trip in Finland, the newest NATO member, to meet with Nordic leaders. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russian forces threatened the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. He's heard here through an interpreter. We have information from our intelligence that on the roof of several power units of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the Russian military installed objects similar to explosives. The world sees that the only source of danger for the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is Russia itself and no one else. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is in Japan to address safety concerns about the destroyed Fukushima nuclear power plant. The agency has approved a plan to release radioactive water into the ocean. The plant is running out of storage space for the water. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It has begun. The Sumner Tunnel is now officially closed. Crews will spend the next two months repairing the tunnel between East Boston and downtown. Drivers are encouraged to use public transit. The the blue line is free and ferry service is set to increase during the shutdown. Tim Degata is traveling from Boston to Washington, D.C. He says he was prepared for the closure when he originally got to the city. Good messaging. We knew about the tunnel. We saw the signs on the tunnel on the way in. Our airline also told us, so it was well known. We'll have more on the closure coming up in 15 minutes here on Morning Edition. Some lawmakers representing Somerville want better contingency plans for the upcoming closure of the Green Line extension. The section between Leachmere and Union Square will close for several weeks beginning later this month. State Representative Mike Connolly represents part of Somerville and Cambridge. He sent a letter to leaders at the MBTA and the State Department of Transportation asking for a more robust public alternative transit plan from the state. Right now, the T plans to rely on three bus routes in the area. We are raising questions because it's not clear that those existing bus lines will really accommodate all of Union Square's Green Line ridership. Connolly is asking for dedicated shuttle buses to get around the closure. State transit officials say the shutdown is necessary for repairs to a bridge over the train tracks. Massachusetts is spending $11 million on a campaign to help low-income residents keep their health insurance. The goal is to prevent people from dropping off the state Medicaid program now that the federal government requires them to prove they're still eligible. More now from WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey. In other states, large numbers of Medicaid recipients are falling off coverage for failing to return forms. Massachusetts is trying to avoid this. Maria Gonzalez helped launch the statewide outreach campaign. She says Mass Health members need to update their contact information, watch for important mail, and respond right away. They need to understand that it impacts them, that they need to take action, and that the consequences are that they may actually lose health coverage, which they haven't seen in the last three years. 
Outreach workers are knocking on doors in more than a dozen communities and sharing information in nine languages. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. We're getting more details about the woman rescued after being trapped in a swamp in Easton for days. Police say she was likely trapped for at least three days in Borderland State Park. She was rescued Monday after passersby heard her cries for help. Family members tell the Boston Globe the 31-year-old is lucid and recovering from her injuries. It's 834. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. The Red Sox and Rangers meet tonight at Fenway. Texas snapped Boston's three-game winning streak yesterday. The final was 6-2. Sunny today and we'll have a high in the upper 80s. Tonight it falls to around 70 and some clouds move back in. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high back in the upper 80s. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Lamone, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. President Biden is urging state and congressional leaders to address the gun violence epidemic after multiple shootings killed at least 15 people in the U.S. over the 4th of July holiday weekend. In Philadelphia, a gunman killed five people, including a teenager, and wounded two others, both children, in an apparent random attack Monday night. Here's Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney. I am frustrated and outraged that mass shootings like this continue to happen in communities across the United States. This country needs to re-examine its conscience and find out how to get guns out of dangerous people's hands. We're now joined by Philadelphia City Council Member Kenyatta Johnson. He founded and chairs the Council's Special Committee on Gun Violence Prevention. Good morning, Mr. Johnson. Hey, good morning, Rob. How are you? Pretty good. Let's start with Monday's shooting in your city. Do authorities know whether there was a possible motive for the attack? To date right now, we don't have a motive on the actual attack. Um, it's being viewed as being a random attack, but even if that's the case, it's totally um, unacceptable. And there are several family members who are hurting from the loss of their loved ones, as well as a community and a city. This is a tragic event. You know, Mayor Kenny says the country needs to get guns out of people's hands. Uh, while it waits for more action on the federal level, what can cities like Philadelphia do to reduce gun violence? Well, I've chaired the Special Committee on Gun Violence. We've taken a three-pronged approach focusing on prevention, intervention, and most importantly, enforcement. And so making sure that we're investing in organizations, what we call boots on the ground, that support and focus on young people who are carrying guns and pro- providing them opportunities so they don't pick up guns in the first place. On the intervention side, finding ways and working with organizations that intervene and resolve conflicts around individuals so they don't pick up guns to resolve conflicts in the first place. And last and most importantly, enforcement. Tracking down where illegal guns are coming from. We know there are no gun factories in the neighborhoods here in the city of Philadelphia, so where are these guns coming from? 
focusing on and advocating for gun laws that will prevent individuals who have mental health issues from having guns in the first place. Um, there are rumors that the individual involved in this particular um, shooting had some type of mental health issues, and so we want to focus on mental health as a key way to addressing gun violence from a public health epidemic and also making sure we're holding individuals accountable while picking up guns in the first place. And so we have to take a comprehensive approach, but there are way too many guns flooding the streets of Philadelphia as well as urban cities across this country. Right. I mean, are, are there any cities or states in the U.S. that you feel have managed uh, gun violence effectively? And, and, is, and is Philadelphia looking outwards to sort of learn from these places? Well, there were some. There, there, there are some cities in California. Oakland has a program that we have been taking a look at, and this is a program that focuses on violence interrupters, individuals who are going out in the community who have a background in addressing issues of gun violence, maybe have experience of being involved in gun violence in their own lives, as one of the key ways in addressing gun violence amongst young people in mm -hmm. neighborhoods, but also taking a public health approach as well. And so we have to make sure that we're addressing this with an all-hands-on-deck approach, and that's the only way we want to solve this issue of gun violence, not only in the city of Philadelphia, but also throughout the country. That's Philadelphia City Council Member Kenyatta Johnson. Mr. Johnson, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, Rob. Take care. The Startup Forward Party faces an uphill battle as it prepares to run its first slate of candidates. The party was started last year by former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang and former Republican Governor Christine Todd Whitman. It's now setting its sights on the 2024 elections. WYPR's Scott Mausiani has more from Maryland. What we're doing is we're collecting names right now, so we're trying Members to of the newly formed Forward Party are set up at the Pride Festival in Frederick, Maryland on a hot June day. The party, which wants to reduce partisan polarization and implement electoral reforms, needs 10,000 valid signatures to put anyone on the ballot in Maryland for any office in the upcoming 2024 election. Matthew Byers is the chair of the Maryland Forward Party. The Board of Elections is going to look at each and every one of these signatures and make sure these are real people and that we didn't make something up. And the Democrats and the Republicans are going to work as hard as they can to scratch out as many of these signatures as possible and say these are invalid. We're aiming for 17,500 just to make sure. The party's slogan is not left, not right, forward. But its platform right now is pretty bare bones. There are only a few main tenets the party is pushing for. The highest priority is ranked choice voting. Brandon Barrett is Maryland Forward Party's vice chair. They can rank their candidates order preference so they don't feel like they're wasting a vote. It's a concept that's already used in Alaska and Maine, as well as a handful of large cities across the country. Voters rank for who they want to vote for. If their first choice isn't one of the top two vote-getting candidates, then that choice is disregarded. Their vote then goes on to the highest-ranked candidate that ends up in the top two. We're not interested in throwing a Hail Mary into either the presidential race or even into federal races. Joel Searby is the managing director of the National Forward Party. The idea is to challenge the two-party system without having to worry about third parties spoiling elections. The Forward Party is trying to stray away from blockbuster races and instead focus on getting people into office. The vast majority of the races that we're focusing on are races where there is either an uncontested race, so the incumbent or the previous office holder has no one running against them, 
To date, the forward parties recruited a handful of elected officials to their cause, including members of the Pennsylvania State Senate and the mayor of Newberry, Florida. But 2024 will be the first election where the forward party is truly running candidates. Apart from its focus on electoral reform, the party's letting the state parties and even individual candidates decide what ideologies are right for them. The forward party is proceeding in an atypical way. William Galston is a governance studies senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. They had made the decision to proceed from the bottom up rather than the top down. And that does make them distinctive, if not unique, among movements of this sort. Back at the Pride Festival in Maryland, the forward party is getting a steady flow of traffic. Suze Paxton enthusiastically put down her John Hancock on the petition. Like many people, I'm just very frustrated with the partisan politics and the stalemate and nothing getting done for actual citizens. I'd like to see that change. You know, there's so many awful things happening in this country and we're focusing on stupid things, on is there a rainbow in my beer? You know, it's just making me crazy. We've got to get some grown-ups in charge. The day ended with more than 200 signatures to put the forward party on the ballot, but they still have a long way to go to reach a valid 10,000. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report explores questions around the stock trading activities of top executives and investors who have access to confidential information. A sunny day today in the upper 80s. It grows partly overcast again tonight and falls to around 70, mostly sunny tomorrow and near 90. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston. A new ranking of charitable giving shows Massachusetts is somewhat generous. That's according to a report by the financial technology company Smart Asset. It found Bay State residents donate more than the national average to charities. WBUR Zinjor and Wemeka reports that some counties were more generous than others. While no Massachusetts county was in the top 10 nationally, the study ranked Norfolk County number one in the state. Residents there gave a little more than 1.6% of their income to charitable causes. Dukes, Middlesex, Suffolk, and Barnstable counties rounded out the top five. The study looked at tax data to assess how much people donate as a percentage of their incomes and the proportion of people in each county who make charitable donations. All this was used to develop a so-called charitable county index to measure the most generous regions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zeninjor and Wameka. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. And Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com.
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Sumner Tunnel is now closed and will stay closed until the end of August. State officials have been warning for weeks that the closure of the nearly 100-year-old link between East Boston and downtown will cause severe delays. So what's it like this morning? For that, we're joined by WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. So you're at Logan Airport on this morning after a holiday. What's it like there right now? You know, it's pretty quiet. People are coming and going. There was a little bit of congestion um, getting into the airport, but nothing too bad. Okay, that's surprising because the state had warned that the tunnel closure would even affect people heading in the opposite direction in all directions. So what was your commute like? The commute was pretty smooth. I was coming from um, West Roxbury into Logan, and honestly, it was smooth sailing. Um, I know that MassDOT um, and other transportation officials in the state have been warning about congestion, you know, coming in and out of East Boston. But um, they were anticipating that because of the holiday that this might be uh, lighter, congestion might be a little bit lighter because people might be traveling. Um, So I think that's what I experienced this morning. So is this the calm before the storm? Could be. I um, I was speaking with uh, Massachusetts, uh, you know, with MassDOT's highway administrator, Jonathan Gulliver, just last week, and he was saying that they really expect um, congestion to get bad or ramp up um, on July 10th when people return from, from vacationing. Can you remind us why the state closed the tunnel for nearly two months? It's really all about repair work. Uh, the tunnel is nearly 100 years old, and MassDOT says to keep the infrastructure safe, crews are going to need to do things like remove deteriorated concrete and replace support arches that hold up the ceiling of the tunnel. Um, they say the goal is to do all of this work, um, even though it's inconvenient, <laughs> um, in order to keep the tunnel in tip-top shape for the next 100 years. <laughs> Drivers have been dealing with this tunnel being closed on most weekends for about a year now. What have we learned from those closures that can give us an idea of what to expect over the next eight weeks? I spoke with East Boston resident John Walkie, who is also with the Chelsea-based nonprofit Green Roots just last week, and he said that these weekend closures um, have been kind of tough. Normally, it takes him five minutes on a Sunday morning to get from his house um, through the Sumner Tunnel, which he takes to visit his mother in New Hampshire. But during these closures, like that five-minute drive has easily been 30 to 45 minutes to get on that road. And that's on a weekend when traffic is not, you know, kids aren't in school and, you know, traffic isn't as bad. It's not a commuting day uh, and it's miserable. So uh, Walkie says that having to deal with these closures seven days a week is going to be nightmarish. State and local leaders have been telling people to ditch the drive if they can to avoid delays. So what options are available? So the MBTA's blue line will be free during the tunnel closure and so will the East Boston Ferry. Um, Another option if you're coming in from the North Shore is the Lynn Ferry, which resumed service just last week. And our website, WBUR.org, has wonderful resources about how to get around um, during the closure. That's WBUR transportation reporter Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reporting from Logan Airport. Thank you so much for being there and keeping us up to date this morning. Thank you, Ruba.
Radio with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have war on the fallout from riots across France last week and how leaders in Cuba are working to end a months long fuel crisis on the island. It's 849. New research found that police drug busts could actually increase the number of overdoses and drug deaths in communities struggling with addiction. By not having law enforcement, public health, behavioral health, harm reduction, all working together, we're going to end up with more people being harmed. Public health experts say police must evolve their tactics to save lives. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Israeli officials say they've ended a days-long military strike in the West Bank that killed at least a dozen Palestinians. President Biden is pushing for gun reform after several mass shootings marred July 4th celebrations across the country. And in Massachusetts, commuters are now contending with the closure of the Sumner Tunnel. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage. Employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. Upper 80s today under clear skies. Temperatures fall to around 70 tonight and it'll grow a bit cloudy. But back to mostly sunny skies tomorrow and it'll be near 90. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston at 851. It wasn't just the weather delaying those holiday flights. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. We're still waiting for final numbers on people traveling for the holiday that just ended. For cars plus planes, the number of people traveling is expected to be the highest on record. And for air travel, it wasn't just weather contributing to cancellations and delays. There's a staff shortage. This includes FAA jobs and pilots. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has more. The prospect of a pilot shortage was on the radar for TD Cowan's Helene Becker for a good decade or so. But she says the pandemic, along with a mandatory retirement age of 65, sped up the timeline. Airlines went to their employees and said, If you were intending to retire between 2020 and 2022, or even 2023, consider retiring now. And thousands of pilots did, leading to a pipeline problem that Becker says the industry is scrambling to resolve. It can take years for pilots to get the training they need to become certified to fly commercial aircraft. And that training can cost tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. The number one thing that they're doing is setting up training academies to identify people and work with them. Carriers are also working to make the job more attractive, says Henry Hardevelt of Atmosphere Research Group. The airlines are able to recruit more people to be pilots by increasing their salaries, improving benefits. 
And that's working for both major carriers and regional airlines, he says, who've been able to hire about 10,000 of the 18,000 pilots needed this year. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Sunday through yesterday, flight cancellations were running between 28,000 and 32,000 a day. 1,400 flights were canceled on the 4th, according to FlightAware. By the way, the first number, 28,000, were delays. Markets, Dow and S&P futures are down half a percent. NASDAQ futures down six-tenths percent with hints about the economy and interest rates in Federal Reserve meeting notes that are due out today. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. It's part of who they are. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. Now to data that highlight the amazing timing of some top corporate executives when they buy and sell stock. Maybe it's luck. The nonprofit investigative news outlet ProPublica got a hold of IRS data that raised questions about whether company executives are acting on privileged information. ProPublica reporter Robert Federici worked on this. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you got all this IRS data. You found that some executives demonstrate a talent, a knack, an impressive acumen for what? Yeah, so we have IRS data for thousands of the wealthiest Americans. And as part of that, we have their stock trading data over many years. And we can see executives and other well-connected investors trading in their personal accounts, their competitors, their partners with incredible timing. Our most recent story looks specifically at biotech and other relatively small healthcare firms. And we found dozens of incredibly timed trades there including by people who have personal ties to the companies they're trading. So you even, I think, have used the term exquisite timing, but sometimes, you know, luck comes your way, right? These trades can be luck. One thing we tried to do was to make sure that we were focusing on trades that were anomalous compared to the person's other trades, right? It was their first time using high-risk options, or they were suddenly trading way more than they ever had in the past. Those are hallmarks that securities experts usually point to as suspicious. It's not illegal to just score because your timing happened to be right. What is illegal under U.S. securities law, of course, is insider trading. If you're actually making decisions whether to buy or sell based on special information that the world at large doesn't have. Yeah, there are other elements as well. You know, one example that I can point to was the CEO of a company called Medivation. And on the same day that he announced that his company was acquiring a niche type of cancer drug called a PARP inhibitor, he bought about $8 million of another company that also produced a PARP inhibitor. And biotech experts we talked to said the acquisition of one PARP inhibitor creates buzz about all of them. And in fact, the stock went up two days later when the drug acquisition was announced. Did that executive comment on what you found? His spokesman talked to us. They said that they believed that the news of the drug acquisition was not material and that his trades were proper. Are regulators thinking about taking some action based on what you found? So we have repeatedly at this point gone to the SEC. We've asked them about particular cases. We've 
also ask them about their enforcement priorities. You know, are they committed to examining whether executives are improperly trading the stock of their competitors and partners? They have refused to comment, so we don't know. Larger question here is about faith in the markets and if regular investors, you know, have a shot at this, if the top people seem to have an inside track in some way. You know, the securities experts we've talked to, former SEC officials, former DOJ officials, what they've said is that the kinds of trades that we're finding in this leak of data are trades that should be scrutinized by regulators. And if, you know, executives and other well-connected investors have sort of an inside edge that the normal trading public doesn't have, that could undermine faith that the markets are fair. Robert Federici is a reporter with ProPublica. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And here's a number 68% of us keep working while on vacation, more than two-thirds. There's some survey from Elevator, an online learning platform. When Newsweek needed a quote about the survey from the CEO of Elevator, he responded while vacationing with his family in Italy. And despite dramatically low unemployment, many workers are worried about warnings of recession and are not vacationing over the next few months. Others are worried about being judged by co-workers and bosses if they don't get work done while away. It's not a choice for many lower-paid workers who get no paid vacation at all. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. Summer is a great time to find new books to read, whether it's sitting on the beach, by the pool, or just on your couch. And our Beach Books newsletter has some great titles for you to pick. Sign up for it at wbur.org slash newsletters. We'll have sunny skies in upper 80s today, tonight partly cloudy at around 70, then mostly sunny tomorrow with temperatures near 90. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.